Hi, this is Patty Lapone. This is Allison Janney. This is Matt Balmer. This is Donna Murphy. This is Nia Vardalis. This is Jesse Tyler Ferguson. This is Beanie Feldstein. I'm Octavia Spencer. This is Ben Platt, and you're listening to Little Known Facts with my favorite person on the planet, Alana Levine. A-OK. Welcome to Little Known Facts, a podcast where you will hear unfiltered, raw, honest, and uniquely funny interviews with artists you love as they talk about the art they love to make. I'm your host, Ilana Levine. Hey, I heard you needed inspiration. He's Ilana and friends with some revelations. Little known back to the day, every little thing's gonna be a-okay. Little known fact about my guest today, he is an Academy Award nominated director, the recipient of countless awards. He's also one of my oldest friends, and I got my equity card because of this next guest. Welcome the extraordinary RJ Cutler, director, producer, writer, creator of all things wonderful to the podcast. A-okay. My guest today is RJ Cutler. RJ is an award-winning producer and director who has made some of the most significant documentaries of the past quarter century. His films include The War Room, A Perfect Candidate, The September Issue, Listen to Me, Marlon, The World According to Dick Cheney, and Thin. His scripted work includes conceiving and directing Nashville and directing the feature film If I Stay. He directed the Showtime doc, Belushi. He's also the producer and director of the upcoming Billie Eilish documentary. His series, Dear, can be seen on Apple TV. And his musical drama, Bronzeville, which he executive produced along with John Ridley, Alicia Keys, Benj Pasek, and Justin Paul, and Mark Platt, will also be on Showtime. He is one of my oldest friends, and I am so honored to have him on the podcast the honor is entirely mine. Now, I I will say this and I'm not and I'm not blowing smoke. I could have spent the next hour reading all of the credits of all the amazing projects that you have been a part of, um scripted reality and and documentary. And the thing that has really sort of um kept coming back to my mind that I wanted to talk to you about is now that you have sort of worked with so many people who are at the height of whatever it was that they chose to do from Anna Wintour to Billie Eilish to John Belushi um, to George Stephanopoulos and on and on. Um, is there a thread? Is there a sort of Malcolm Gladwellness to their success that you have borne witness to? I mean, Dear, your Apple series includes Spike Lee and Lin-Manuel Miranda and Oprah, and, and the, the list is extraordinary. So that was my first question. Uh, what a great question. Thank you. Uh, um, you know, I think that I find myself saying a lot that uh, what compels me are people who care a tremendous amount about what they're doing and are doing it as well as they possibly can under high stakes circumstances. And, um, and that, that seems to be uh, consistent and, and even explains the, the, the folks I've done work about who, um, who, who aren't in the public eye, but I'm also of course, very compelled by, by folks like, uh, like like Billy, like uh, John Belushi, like Anna Wintour, who are like George and James, who are engaged in these uh, enormous high stakes endeavors and are, of course, just, you know, uh, on some very, very, very important level, normal folk um, with great gifts. And and I'm also compelled by, I think, uh, turning points in people's lives. So I tend to find them uh, at crossroads of of one sort or another. Of course, with John Belushi, it's a the 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 film I've made is a um, you know it's a biography of of a man who passed away a, a few decades ago. But um, but I'm able to tell the story of of the various crossroads he he found himself at, and uh, and so there you go. Well, I mean, you to me are an example of someone who has managed to meet a moment 
um, with tremendous preparedness and brilliance um, and passion. And that is something that was really clear to me when I met you <laughs> a very long time ago at the very beginning of both our careers, which have moved into some different directions. Um, but I just want to go back because, mm. you know, I met RJ, I was doing, I got my equity card, as many of you know, at the Berkshire Theater Festival. And one of the plays I did that summer was directed um, by the great RJ Cutler, whom I'm speaking with right now. Um, and at the time, uh, I don't know how many years it had been since you had graduated from Harvard. Um, but you were embarking upon a, a life in the arts, clearly, but focused on theater originally. Mm -hmm. um, so let's talk a little bit about your story and and how you became a lover of the arts in general. Well, um, you're, you're right to kind of root it in in the time we met and and my love for the theater and my um, I think decade long career in the theater before I. Uh, decided that it, wouldn't it be neat to make a film about the 1992 presidential campaign and then discovered, you know, an even greater, uh, I think, life's objective in terms of my work, uh, which was nonfiction storytelling. But I was a kid who always, uh, always loved two things. One was putting on plays and the other was, was, uh, was having a, a newspaper. And I, I, as early as first grade, I would gather my friends during recess and, uh, and a pile of Charlie Brown books, you know, that with, with four panels on each, on every couple of pages and, and, and create a narrative with Charlie Brown characters, with Peanuts characters, and then perform it. We, we would perform it on the baseball field, the softball field at the elementary school. So in first, second, and third grades, I was the uh, the director who played Charlie Brown, but, you know, Adam Frankfurt was Snoopy and Debbie Eisenberg was Peppermint Patty and on, you know, and, uh -huh. and, and they, we did it for three years, the same cast. It, like it became a thing and the kids would come, the whole school would come and sit on the hill behind the softball field. And that's, and why did I do it? Goodness knows. Thank goodness. My, my, you know, my folks took me to plays. I, I, the first show I ever saw was Bernadette Peters and Dames at Sea, you know, when it, whenever that was, 67, I think. Um, and, and I got to see all those, I got to, I was exposed to theater and I loved it. Um, and then I also loved having a school newspaper and, and, and doing that. So, so I was always kind of interested both in theater and nonfiction somehow. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but my love for the arts was rooted in my love for theater and then my love for doing it. And then in fourth grade, years before the Gene Wilder movie, we read, uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. And uh, and I said to my teacher, I'm going to go home. When it finished, I said, I'm going to go home this week and adapt this into a play. And she kind of laughed. And uh, I took a pile of ditto paper home with me and spent the weekend typing away and came in on Monday with a with a script. And of course, I was the only one who could read my my awful typing. So I got cast as the as Willy Wonka. And we did we did, you know, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory for the whole school. This was my foundation. I was I was I was blessed enough to be exposed by my parents to the theater and then to be surrounded by uh, teachers uh, who, did, you know, they giggled but they didn't stop me. They encouraged mm -hmm. me and they supported me and my friends did as well. And that was the, you know, that was the foundation. And I, I, I you know, I kept on doing it for the reasons we all kept on doing it. We, uh, it was a room we were, we were happy in, you know, yeah. it was, uh, um, and, and it was, it was, to me, it was spiritual from the earliest age. I loved being in theater. I loved what happened when you walked into the theater. I, I, Occasionally, I remember strolling down, you know, one of the side streets in the Broadway district and a stage door would be open and I'd glance in and see the, you know, see the winches and just think, wow, what, you know, it was all of that. I was, I was from a very early age, I guess you would call it stage struck and, um, and, and for whatever reason, 
it was the organizing of it and the and the directing and the and the writing and the creating that I I loved most of all. Performing was fun, but never really my thing in the way that you know directing was. And so that's the roots. And when you went to college, was your intention to major in theater and directing? Harvard in those days didn't have a theater program. It had Bob Brewstein had just come over from Yale. Like the year we got there, Bob came over and brought the American Repertory Theater. So there was a professional theater. But the big thing about Harvard was the kids, did, the students did their own theater. We all did our own. Uh, uh, it wasn't part of the academic program because in those days, Harvard was very strictly not about pre-professionalism. So you, you, you could study dramatic literature, which is what I did, but you, but I, I, you, 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 you couldn't study acting or directing per se, but we did it all the time. We were constantly doing shows and, and, you know, the, I don't know if you, if your listeners are familiar with the 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 great Bill Roush and the Cornerstone Theater Company, uh, um, which which so um, uh, has has had so much influence on what the American theater is now in terms of uh, in ter- in all ways. But all the folks who ended up forming uh, Cornerstone were my classmates and peers at at Harvard, and we all did plays together and. And I had a slightly different ambition. They, they, you know, they went off to explore the country, and and the potentials for 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 community-based theater all over the country. And I really was excited about as a young director about what what New York could be. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it was a different time, as you know. It was in the early '80s. We and we were all raised to kind of think of Broadway as the as the enemy, the 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 commercial theater. We it was the it was the off Broadway theater movement that we and the regional theater movement that we were all kind of inspired by. But um, but when I Harvard was great and and the education I got there was great. Um, but it was varied also. The things I, I, I studied, I, I, I took classes in film studies and philosophy and 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 other things that that rounded out my education. When I got to New York, there was there was a lot of opportunity for young directors because it was a tough time. Uh, uh, it was the height of the AIDS crisis, uh, and, and, and a lot of people were, were starting to ask, where will the next generation of artists come from? And so, uh, uh, I, I was lucky enough to participate in the drama league of New York's new directors program. I think I was the first person to do that when it was just like, there were, there were, you know, it was just me. And then, uh, at the time, the New York theater workshop had, had its director's apprenticeship program or whatever new director's project it was called. And I got to do that. So I got a little launch to my career. And then I, 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 I was introduced to James Lapine, who was looking for a, an assistant on, uh, on into the woods. And, you know, you can imagine the, what, what happened to a 23 year old who, who wandered into that world and it was life changing. Well, uh, just as an aside, one of the other directors that was at the Berkshire Theater Festival the summer you and I met was Michael Greif. The great and Michael he, Greif. He has remained, you know, a, a, a cornerstone of the Broadway theater. Um, can I? Can I? And by the way, and also yeah. a, a dear, a dear friend to this day, uh, uh, um, who, who's, who, with whom I always share my work early. And whose counsel I rely on greatly, and whose work I love going to see as early as possible all the time, and and we formed that friendship as you and I did at the Berkshire Theater Festival, and um, and and the, you know those years that that kind of apprenticeship and training, those opportunities that we all had to work together. I mean, remember, you know, I remember Phil Hoffman passing through. I remember, you know, there were so yeah. many people who we, yeah. who we got to share both the creative experience and the, the, the social experience with, you know, we were all kids with the dream and, uh, and, and because of each other, we felt those dreams were possible. You know, I, I want to ask you before we move on, you got into Harvard, <laughs> right? Um, 
which has always been uh, a very hard college to get into. If you are into reading lists, it's always the number one university in America um, and, and maybe beyond whether, you know, people who go there would agree or not about its placement is irrelevant to the question I'm going to ask you, which <laughs> is, was that, um, was that something that you had always dreamed of? I was looking for something interesting to do the summer after my junior year in Harvard, uh, as it, I think it still does, has a, a, a pre-college program for, for high school juniors. And so I applied and I got in and I took a creative writing class and a modern drama history class. And, uh, and I, I made a lot of friends and I had an amazing experience. I had never been exposed to what is called the modern drama before. Right. I had never read Odette's. I had never uh, you know, read Ionesco, I had, on and on. I'd never so read Chekhov. It was yeah. thrilling, it was My thrilling. Yeah. And then I studied creative writing with the, 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 the C. Michael Curtis, who was the uh, fiction editor at the Atlantic Monthly at the time. What a thrill, and, um, and lived in the Harvard dorms. But I left there thinking the last thing I wanna do is go to school here for four years, not because I didn't love it, but because I thought I would want a, something that wasn't in a city that was in more kind of, you know, rural environment. I was a, you know, I, I was an alternative school kid. My high school was, I went to a program within my high school where we didn't really have grades. Uh, and you, I, did you I, grow up on Long Island? I grew up in Great Neck, Long Island. Okay. Uh, and I went to the community school at Great Neck North Senior High School. And, uh, and my, uh, I, I had hair, you know, halfway down my back and I, it was 1979. And I, I loved as I say, theater and journalism and was on the basketball team. But I I was just a kind of unusual, I think, kid who liked to do things. And um and 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 that and my parents were like, just apply, you know, in the way that parents do, because they know if they're like, you better apply, you won't do it. But they were like, just right. apply, you don't have to go. And so I, I, and because I was in an alternative school where we didn't have a lot of grades, I had no idea if I would, what colleges would want me and would want a kid who directed the Three Penny Opera and had ran an underground, you know, magazine at the school and was also on the basketball team. But you and probably had perfect SAT scores. I had fine SAT scores. I, I, I believe that, um, that I was embraced by the schools that accepted me and by Harvard because of the things that I did, because mm -hmm. of my, I wrote my essay on what it was like to direct the Three Penny Opera. I, um, as a 16 year old who barely understood it <laughs> and I was conscious of barely understanding it, but right. I was also very conscious of what the, you know, the, what directing might mean and what it might mean to huh. me. And I wrote very honestly about that. And I, I, I think that is part of what, what made me compelling as a, as a, as a, uh, a student uh, there much more. So believe me, I was not an AP kid. I was, I, I didn't have grades. I mean, we, I didn't have like a placement in the class because I was in this alternative program. Right. I, um, but I think my teachers recognized something in me and wrote uh, uh, passionately uh, in my recommendations. And, um, and uh, I, you know, I recall my interview being with somebody of, of great seniority who owned many cats and, um, <laughs> and having my, my tweed, you know, uh, the one suit I owned, which was a, 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 a tweed, an ill-fitting tweed suit, covered, covered in cat hair when my mom came to pick me up from the interview. But I suspect I conducted myself, you know, with dignity and charm and 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 pretended for the hour to be a cat lover um, in enough of a persuasive way that my interview went well. And, you know, that was it. That's that's probably how I got in. But there were there were plenty of schools I thought I was going to get into that I didn't get into, mm. you know, and um and it wasn't, there was nothing formulaic, I think, about my experience then. I'm not quite sure why I wasn't a more formulaic kid, um, but I, um, for whatever reason, that's been kind of consistent with my professional life uh, and my personal life, but that's not the subject of this of this but uh, it can podcast. Be. But it can always be. But the <laughs> but, thing I think about 
when I think of like how I would describe you, it's always been in equal parts confident and curious. Like that has always been my experience of you. Um, I don't know if confidence is something that you were just born with or grew into, or if your curiosity and passion for life um, appeared as confidence. Uh, but does that feel like you to you? Uh, thank you for saying those things. Uh, I think I'm probably as, as uh, uh, equal proportions of confident and self-doubting as, mm-hmm. as, as most people who do uh, what we do are, um, and that my confidence has grown over the years and with experience, and that I'm familiar with uh, exploring because of my curiosity, which I definitely have is 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 an apt description of, of me from from an early age. Because of my curiosity, uh, I um, I I have often found myself in brand new situations and um, uh, trying even new careers, you know, uh, or new or new new parts of what it means to be a director and a producer and a creator. Uh, it's all, it's all different. You know, if you're doing, I mean, I wrote and directed a podcast last year called uh, the Oval Office Tapes. It was a, a comedy, a satirical, a, a comedy that, that theorized that there was the, you know, that the, the soccer ball that Putin gave to, to, to Trump, I think it was in Helsinki, was had, you know, a transmitter in it. So now suddenly we could hear all the conversations at the White House. And then we, and then we did, you know, and, and I had never done that before. So mm-hmm. did I have confidence doing it? I, I don't think so. But as we got down the road, you know, my curiosity drove me and I, I was, uh, I was, I was excited to be on a new adventure. Um, but, you know, I certainly experienced self-doubt with, um, you know, with the best of them. And, um, but curiosity is, is definitely a thing. And, you know, there's a foundation, Alana. It's such an interesting thing that we're, we're talking so much about theater because I was, you know, Belushi premieres next weekend. And so I've been doing a lot of interviews and somebody asked the other day, what um, you've done, podcasts and documentaries and scripted and your background in theater and feature, blah, blah, blah. What is common? And I said, you know what? What's common is my training as a theater director. All those years of kind of being, being reminded that as a theater director, you, you are responsible for the fact that you've gathered this group of people together into the theater on this night and to tell them this story, to present this event for them to share. And you better know what you have to say. Mm-hmm. You better know why why you gathered them. You better have feel as though you have you have <laughs> taken full responsibility for the things you are presenting, and that you are engaging them and entertaining them and surprising them and 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 delighting them, and that that you have you have embraced danger and the unknown and all of those things. Otherwise, why have you bothered to do it? How many teachers do we have who said, otherwise, why did you bother? You know, right. and, and, and I, I, I keep that in mind every day. You know, it, it, it's, I, I bring a theater director's perspective to making a documentary about John Belushi and a documentary about Billie Eilish. I can't help it. It's who I am. You know, and um, and and I I'm so grateful for all that disciplined training and and you know I I've just spent some weeks at the O'Neill studying directing with people like you know Adrian Shelley who was probably 85 years old from the Bristol Old Vic and 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 Adrian Noble who was you know a young man about to take over the Royal Shakespeare Company and man were those they were like you best know what you have to say. You know, and yeah, I, I think about it all the time. Things. Yeah. Well, I want to go back for a minute to your early days with James Lapine and Stephen Sondheim <laughs> and being in the room that built the thing that has been, you know, the the anthem for so many of us. Um, mm. And and when you think about the, you know, the number of things they made together um, that are the the soundtracks to so many of our lives for people who love the theater. Um, is there anything being in that room with those two men that you took with you 
for for your own projects, things you remember, things that were said. Hmm. Uh, James once told me that, that, that perhaps one of the most important parts of his job was to say, uh, it's all going to be great. <laughs> it's going to be great. <laughs> no matter what, no matter what building was collapsing around you, it's, it's going to be great. Be okay. It's going to be great. Not just okay. It's going to be great. Well, and, uh, and that was like, that's a, that's a, that's a, big fat lesson, you know, and, and also James's humor uh, at all times, at all times, humor, even gallows humor, but humor uh, uh, as a, as a tool. Mm -hmm. Uh, Of course I learned from them as artists. Of course I learned from their dedication and their hard work. And every morning there were fresh pages from James and Steve was, was, was tackling another, you know, riddle and, and, and and facing the facts of whether or not the previous riddle had been solved successfully. Mm. Um, and of course that cast, I mean, you know, occasionally it ha- I'd have to get on stage with a script because somebody was d- in a fitting and, and fill in, you know, wh- move to their marks and read their lines. And you see the, you know, you, y'all are, t- it's it's real uh-huh. what a what a the the broadway musical stage performer it was like at a whole level i had never experienced before yeah. and it was beautiful and the, and the dedication and the hard work and the hours uh um but but for me with james it was it was also just this kind of belief in the in, in uh, i i want to say in the magic i'm not sure he ever used that word but mm-hmm. But that's what it felt like. It felt it all the time. And of course, you felt it and the history and the tradition. Here I was, what was I, 23, 24? Yeah, um, uh, baby. And and, a baby, a baby. And it's where I, you know, actually, I think when we were rehearsing, Michael was was assistant directing or maybe even directing a production of, um, of, 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 you know, Big River. In a we we were at eight ninety in those days. Uh-huh. So, uh huh. So so Michael was nearby, Michael Greif, and there was also that Broadway community thing. So I met Ted Sperling then because mm-hmm. he was working on something not far away, and um, and so that was a big part of it. But look, I was in as you say, I was in the room with with James Lapine and Steve Sondheim and. Paul Gemignani and Paul Ford and Bernadette Peters and and the, you know those kids Danny and Ben and and uh, Bob Westenberg. I mean, you know, you learn. How can you not learn? You're in the presence of great artists yeah. creating something new. And uh, and and then there was also you know, as I say, there was a certain there was a confidence. Like I'd say you know, why is she doing that to James? And he said, you'll see when there's an audience. And then, and then she, you know, whoever she was would do that thing. And the, there'd be a roar, unlike any roar you had ever heard mm-hmm. when there was an audience. So James, right. you know, there was a knowledge of the material that, yeah. um, there was so much, there was so much. I, I be, believe me, I think about it. Uh, I think about it a lot. And, and now I have a five-year-old who, who worshipfully watches the Into the Woods movie and loves mm-hmm. the music and sings mm-hmm. it and requests it and you can and owns her own James Lapine signed DVD that we never play because we stream things. Right. But uh, but right. Uh, you know and and James also you know has remained a great uh, uh, friend and and wise advisor who with whom I share my work and. Mm. And I'm always uh, so grateful to, you know, to, to have his feedback and to see his, his, and he's, he's done, he's made some terrific documentaries uh, uh, as well. Um, so, uh, so, you know, these relationships, they, they last, uh, they, they can last a long. Decades, decades yeah, and decades. Beautiful, right? Yeah. It's a beautiful thing. Yeah. Well, well, I, I met you actually right after I had done Tanner 88 with mm. Bob Altman, which was sort mm. of uh, the beginning of this kind of blending of documentary and reality and, and telling political stories. And then shortly thereafter, you ended up, I guess, going to Pennebaker. Like, tell the story, because the war room was 
the beginning of, of an extraordinary career for you on this new path? Well, I, um, I, as I mentioned, I always loved uh, journalism. I, I came of, you know, 1968 was a, a big year for me. It was the first uh, political election uh, that I was kind of conscious about. My grandfather taught me about voting and, 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 and uh, I was very, very aware of the tragic assassinations of, of, of Bobby Kennedy and Martin Luther King and, um, and this, and the, 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 I had a copy of that book, steal this book by Abby Hoffman mm-hmm. that I t- took from my brother and, uh, and, and, uh, um, I was aware of the yippies and the convention and some of, you know, all that stuff that's in the, the new Aaron Sorkin movie. It was, I, I, I felt like I was living cause I watched it all. I care. So I came of age at a very kind of uh, uh, magical time in terms of news. And, and, and I was a, 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 a passionate uh, follower of politics and Nixon, the, the whole Nixon administration and Watergate. And with those guys were, Bernstein and Wilbur were heroes to me. And, and so I was, oh, I always loved this stuff. And I loved it as landscape for storytelling. I loved the narrative. I loved the characters. I loved the stakes. It was, you know, it was all Shakespearean to me, oddly enough. And, um, and in the summer of 1992, there was this amazing kind of political campaign going on. Uh, there were there were three people involved, and one of them was Bill Clinton, and people were kind of laughing at him. Nobody took him seriously as a candidate. And there was Ross Perot, who's this kind of crazy guy who was talking about lifting up the hood of your car and getting <laughs> under the hood. And then there was George Bush, who had won a war but was kind of completely uninspiring and didn't seem to think that campaigning was, you know, it seemed like he felt it was beneath him to have to campaign for a a second term. And I was just so compelled by it. And before Clinton was nominated, there had been so many candidates. And and, uh, I was at a family reunion and I, uh, you know, my my family, my immediate family was up at like the Nevely celebrating uh, an anniversary of my parents. And and I I was driving home and I, you know, was listening to the radio and having a a toke, as we say. And um, and I thought to myself, my goodness, somebody should make a documentary about this thing. Mm-hmm. Someone has to make a documentary about this campaign, because no matter what happens, the world is going to change. If Bush wins, we'll be all kind of at a loss. If, 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 if Perot wins, it'll be unlike anything we've ever seen. And if this guy Clinton wins, who knows what's going to come of it? And I just it felt that way to me. And they were also talking about it maybe being a tie because of Perot. It would have to go or not having enough. To, nobody would get to 270, something like that. Anywho, I went home and guess who I called? Wendy Ettinger, who'd been the casting director of so many of the the projects I had worked on. Right. She, she was working for, with Daniel Sweet at Playwrights Horizons. I had done uh, Right Behind the Flag there with, uh, with, with, with Kevin Spacey, Kevin Healan's play. And, and I had also uh, done Jonathan, the, the, the workshop of, of uh, Jonathan, of Tick, not of Tick, Tick, Boom, of uh, Superbia, Jonathan Larson's first musical. And we, um, that became the subject of Tick, Tick, Boom. We, I had done a bunch of other things and I was spending a lot of time at uh, at Playwrights Horizons, my girlfriend worked there, and so and that was family to me. And Wendy, I knew, was aspiring to produce like her, um, like like her sister Heidi uh, uh, Ettinger and and her 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 brother in law Rocco Landisman. She she saw producing as a, as a future for her, and we had talked about. It and I called her up, and I was like, we should make a documentary about uh, Bill Clinton's uh, uh, presidential campaign. campaign. Mm-hmm. And I didn't even know what that meant. And here's a lesson. Uh, Sometimes it's good not to know what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's good not to know what you're getting yourself into. (laughs) And and to be a little, let your curiosity lead you and and take a a pill, you know, a fearless pill and it's big deal. And because I believe me, there was no reason for us to have been able to, to, from that phone call to To end up. that movie. Yeah, it made no. Sense. And Wendy actually said, you know, if we could get somebody like D.A. Pennebaker to direct it, um, and 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 what we we didn't know at the time that D.A. Pennebaker's filmmaking partner was Chris Hedges, who was was his wife, and they were they worked together. But Wendy said, if we get somebody like D.A. Pennebaker to direct it, then you know, I think I'm I think I'm in. And you know, I knew that Wendy had a little money squirreled away that might help, and 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 stuff like that. So 
Um, then the next question was, well, how do you get to DA Pennebecker? And guess what the answer was? You look up his phone number in the phone book. And I did, and I dialed it. It's, yeah. I think there was a 495. Uh-huh. Yeah. And guess who picked up the phone? DA Pennebaker. And he said, come on over. Because I don't know why, he just did. Yeah. And, um, and Wendy and I went over there. And, um, and that's when we met Chris Hedges, who was Penny's uh, a co-director for, for, from, had been for many years and was until his passing last summer. And, uh, and, and, and with whom he ended up making so many absolutely brilliant mm-hmm. films. And, um, and we met Fraser Pennebaker, who was their, their producer. And the five of us sat and chatted. And they said to us, well, if you can get the money and the access, we're in. And I looked at Wendy and I smiled at her and we all said, what a pleasure to meet you. I think, by the way, I was wearing T-shirt and shorts at that meeting uh-huh. and um, uh-huh. because I had, who knew how one dresses for you. me? Yes, because I'm me, exactly. exactly. And, uh, <laughs> and um, off we went to celebrate because all we needed was money and access. And I knew we had sure. a little bit of money, so that was taken care of. And I planned to get on the phone the next morning and call the Clinton, Bill Clinton <laughs> and, and arrange yeah. for the access. And, yeah. um, and, and of course, like and just like that. And to hear the, you know, if you ask Penny and Chris the story, uh, you know, uh, they would have told you that uh, that they felt they had gotten rid of us rather effectively. Right. Never <laughs> going to see them again. <laughs> never, never. They never. The guy with the shorts. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, and and his and his super charming friend. Uh, exactly. And so. Um, so uh, that from there on ensued three weeks, maybe four weeks. It was leading up to the Democratic Convention, which was going to be in New York, um, which was kind of why we just had, to, had thought to focus on Bill Clinton in the first place, um, uh, of, of, of me calling everybody I'd ever met and trying to get to Bill Clinton, get to Bill Clinton, get to Bill Clinton. And no who was success. the... Yeah, I was going to say. So, what ended up being the the linchpin, the connect? Uh, well, it became fairly evident over time that the the name that mattered was George Stephanopoulos, and mm-hmm. then it was a question of how do you get to George Stephanopoulos? And here's another thing I didn't know: you don't get to George Stephanopoulos. He's the he's the communications director for the for a presidential campaign. He doesn't have time to talk to you. Uh, uh, you know, documentary producer, really, who's never actually a theater director who thinks he's going to make a documentary. He doesn't really have time. He's very busy. He's trying to get a man elected president. Um, So I and he did not return my first 15 messages. So I started sending telegrams and he didn't return those over either. And finally, I sent him a bottle with a note and that didn't do anything and finally, it became clear that it wasn't going to work. And it was, I think, July 4th weekend. The convention started like the, 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 mon- the Monday after July 4th weekend. And I let everybody know. And they all went on their way. They, the, the, the Pennebakers went off to Sag Harbor and Wendy went up to her house in, in uh, Columbia County, Dutchess County. And... Um, uh, and, and, and that was that. And I took a nap on the floor of Wendy's office where I was working and it was late on like the, you know, the, the, the day before July 4th, July 3rd. And I passed out on the floor and I was sad cause I really thought when we heard money and access that we were in and, um, and the phone rang and it woke me up. And it was George Stephanopoulos and <laughs> he was kind of calling out of mercy to say, I'm sorry, it's not going to happen. They but... stop calling me. Stop <laughs> calling me. Yes. yes, we have words for that now. We we, we yeah. didn't have those words in 1992. Yeah. Exactly. And he, he was he was he was kind of putting a fine point. And we knew people in common, so he was being courteous. And he was he yeah. said, "Look, it's my job to not let you make this movie. That is my, the definition of why the governor hired me." And uh, he was Governor Clinton at the time. And he said, no, he said, I wish I could. I'm such a fan of 
of Pennebaker and Hedges, and and we had of course sent him all these films that Penny had been a part of about the Kennedys in the early '60s, and he right. loved the films and he watched the films. He but I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't. But I wish I could. And I was like, come on, there's got to be the way. I wasn't going to let him off the phone. I was like, there's right. got to be a way. There's got to be a way we can figure something out. He's like, I'm really sorry. I wish I could but I can. And I said, well, if you wish you could, what if we make a, we come and we film with you? And he said, uh, what do you have in mind? <laughs> and that and was the turning point. Yeah. <laughs> that yeah. was the turning point. I found a way to save it. I found a way to turn a no into a yes. And I found, I, they, I found a common interest that George and I had, which was to tell George's story. Mm-hmm. And what do you know? We, I, he said, come over to the Intercontinental. I'll be there tomorrow. Uh, I called Wendy, got her back from the country. <laughs> we went to meet George at the Intercontinental. And uh, then Sunday, a couple of days later, we called everybody back from SAG. Penny and Chris were like, what do you mean we have access to the communications director? You know, Penny had made movies about the Kennedys. He was like the communications director. But yeah. we went, we went and we filmed at the convention and uh, that's when we discovered the, the guy who Penny originally described as the drunken uncle who won't leave the party. But that guy was James Carville. And mm-hmm. he was more than the drunken uncle. He was a movie star. And it was Penny yeah. who realized that when we, we, looked, we went back to the office after the convention and looked at the dailies. And, and by gum, there was movie star James Carville and matinee idol George Stephanopoulos at an incredible convention that four days of which had been unbelievably dramatic. Perot had dropped out. Clinton had emerged as a, as a, as a star, you know, as a political star and his, and Hillary was dazzling and, and Cuomo gave this incredible speech and there was the foundation for a movie. And uh, on some important level, all of our lives were changed. When you look back now, knowing what we know, um, What do you think? I think some, so many things I, and I think, um, I, you know, there's a lot of gratitude, Mm -hmm. Ilana. There's just, I'm, 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 I'm grateful for the good fortune. I'm grateful that I somehow, um, felt like it was okay to trust my instincts. I'm grateful that Wendy, kind of embraced this nascent vision I had. I'm grateful that Penny answered the phone. I'm grateful that George felt it was, you know, did the courteous thing mm-hmm. to, you know, thank me for the bottle. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, you know, I'm, 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 there's a lot of good fortune. And then you got to understand the Penny and Chris were, became my, my teachers. They were teaching right. me a whole new world, a whole new discipline, a whole new art form that I knew nothing about, nothing, zero. You know, mm-hmm. I'm grateful that Bingham Ray showed up and want, when the film was done and was the only person who wanted to distribute it, put it in theaters. Right. Right. You know, everybody else huge. passed. And, and yeah. it, it was, it was, a, a you know, um, I got to experience what great good fortune to get the you know, awards monkey off your back at a, mm-hmm. such an early age. I got mm-hmm. to experience what the Oscar thing was like, and without with and and I got to see what the losers' room was like at the Oscars because we lost, and everybody kind of like zombies wanders into the same bar room where all the other losers are, and there you know there I am drinking with Ray Fine, get licking my wounds. Right. I, you know, you got to experience that at a young at a at early career, young age. A lot of, you know, I, 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 I'm, gr- I'm grateful I was in the room the night that, that, that they won, that I got to witness that, that, yeah. you know, there's just a lot for me. It's just a, a really a lot of gratitude because because uh, it was, you know, a, just the, the great good fortune and the lessons that I learned from that experience. I am, you know, you take that, those lessons and then this foundation I was talking about as someone who is trained as a theater director um, by great teachers who were very wise. Um, uh, that's, that's, that's a lot of solid footing that as you, as you, you know, pursue new projects and new things and new adventures in your work. Well, your new projects, if you look at the, the two docs that you are talking about a lot recently, 
because people want to talk to you about these things as they come out into the world. Um, John Belushi and Billie Eilish are <laughs> very different kinds of superstars. Um, mm. Are these projects now uh, pitched to you or did you always just say, I'm fascinated by John Belushi. I want to do a piece on him and I'm in a place now in my life where I can kind of do the projects I want to do. How are these things happening? Well, this is, you know, talking about lessons learned from, from Penny and Chris, one of the, you know, I asked them early on, why did you, why did you invite us over? And they, they, they said, because you never know where a great idea is going to come from. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's really the answer to your question. You know, I, 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 I was, it's, it's always, it always comes from a different place. Sometimes it's a, you know, the, the, the Mets have a new owner. Guess what? He grew up in Great Neck. He, he's little Stevie Cohn. His mom was my brother and sister's piano teacher. I'm a, I'm a Mets fan from, you know, from, from 1968 on. In utero. Uh, I, in utero, exactly. <laughs> exactly. I, you know, I, I, I can, you don't want to hear the games I was at in 1969. So, um, and on. So, uh, I, I, you better believe I wrote a letter because I'd love to make a movie about uh, Stephen Cohn. Uh, you know, who who now has $14 billion and has purchased the New York Mets and could change their entire history. Right. So that's, a, that's an example. But then there's the example of sitting around with a producing colleague, John Batsik, who, with whom I had just finished producing uh, Listen to Me, Marlon, a movie about Marlon Brando. And, and, and we were talking about what project we'd like to do next. And he said, you know, I've been trying for 10 years to get Judy Belushi to give me the rights to make a movie about John. She even had me have lunch with, with Jim Belushi and he chased me away and told me not to come near the family. And, uh, and, uh, but, but, but my friend John Batsik said, I'm not gonna give up. Would you be interested in directing this? And I, I said, but you know, of course. And then I told him my history with John Belushi and what the, what the National Lampoon Radio Hour meant to me and what, um, and, and what early Saturday Night Live meant to me and what John Belushi meant to me and how excited I was. And we sent her, listen to me, Marlon, and what do you know? She said, uh, she said the time is now right. So let's wow. come, to, come up to Martha's Vineyard. Let's talk. Right. And, and, and with Billy, I was invited to meet with her. And what the, I had the great good fortune of meeting with her. And, and we decided, I decided immediately upon meeting her that this was something I'd be thrilled and honored to do. And, and, um, and, and who, who knows how soon after she decided, but, but I'm told it was right away as well. And, and, uh, and off we went to make a movie together and a movie or, or she trusted me to make a movie about her. So, um, they, everything comes from different ways. I now have a company. We just launched a new company called this machine and I'm working with a mighty team of, of, of other producers and executives. So we have a lot of, we're doing a lot of really exciting projects. I've decided kind of to expand out because I'm just excited about all the all the opportunity in our space now with with streaming, uh, a, 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 a nonfiction storytelling, and also given the moment we're living in in the world, there's so many stories to tell. But there's also great opportunity because audiences really respond to this kind of storytelling. And as a result, the streamers have recognized its value. So there's, right. you know, meaningful financial opportunity, right. which is great. It's terrific. Well, I'm noticing in, you know, in watching a few, you know, uh, you have so much content and only if I'd known that I had a year before I was <laughs> interviewing you, could I consume <laughs> all of it. But there's a way in which you uh, take a form that we think we know and add new elements to it, whether it's animation or, mm. or, you know, in, in Belushi sort of the way in which you tell the story is, is not as straightforward as other documentaries stylistically. Mm. Um, in Deer, you do a sort of, um, what do I call it? A, a dramatization of mm -hmm. the events that, mm -hmm. that the letter writers are, are, are talking about reenactments mm -hmm. maybe of these, um, really incredible stories, but with the people, who live them yeah. as opposed yeah. to dramatizations where you hire yeah. non-union actors to sort yeah. of 
<laughs> sort of Walker. acted out. Yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah. so is that just sort of people spitballing and going, what if we do it this way? What if, rather than just taking, you know, archived footage or, or current footage? Um, what a great question. I, I, once again, it's, 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 it's recognizing it's, it's like doing it's, it's back to the theater training. Mm -hmm. Every project you start, you begin with questions, naive questions. That's what I was taught. Ask the, ask the, the simplest questions. Who, who are these people? What is, what is the story we're telling? How shall we tell it? Where are the, where are the things that seem clear? Where are the riddles uh, uh, that uh, the the path to answering uh, uh, of which are going to r reveal magical things, mm -hmm. you know, it's like it's it's I it's all the same. It's it, we called it text study. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. we mm -hmm. met with the designers. We we exchanged ideas. We you know we drank and smoked and saw what came from it and what remained when we sobered up we you know we we let our we let our right minds lead the journey our, our right brains lead the mm -hmm. journey mm -hmm. and um and and similarly that's the case here i i mean you talk about deer which is a series we have on apple i i was that my my friend Zach Van Amberg, who 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 is one of the, the two people with Jamie Ehrlich who, who run Apple TV Plus, had recently gotten the job, and he had seen an, a, a a kind of long form, commer not commercial, but you know, marketing piece that that Apple had done, in which people whose lives had been changed by the Apple Watch wrote had written letters to Apple and they would read their letters and there would be kind of a, those letters would come to life before mm -hmm. your eyes. Mm -hmm. I was in a car accident and I could call to my Apple watch, call 911 and I saved my life. The Apple watch gets me exercising every day. That's why my diabetes is in remission and I'm an athlete now. I'm, you know, I, there's so many, I, I, the training, right. the physical training, you can right. imagine. Yes. And they're, and it's beautifully filmed and they spent a billion dollars on it because they're Apple and, and J, and they, Zach showed it to me and he's like, is there, is there a TV show? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, there's a riddle because yeah. there's no TV show that's that's about thanking Apple for the Apple Watch. That's not a TV show. No. The, the commercial will take care of it, no problem. Right. But I like the billion dollar part. Yeah. Well, <laughs> funny you should mention that. So did I. <laughs> that's why I was intrigued. Yeah. I was like, let's see if I can come up with something that I like that can partner with the gabillions of uh, yeah. the gabillions. And uh, and 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 then. I thought, well, what if some kid, some 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 Muslim kid in Michigan had written a letter to Bruce Springsteen after he listened to The Rising for the first mm. time? I remember listening to The Rising for the first time. And there you go. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. Yeah. Uh, what, what if what if that kid suddenly felt less alone? Right. Less less of an outsider, less of an enemy and more of an American or more of a member of a community, more embraced. Right. And what if he was able to say so in that letter to Bruce? And what if I talked to Bruce about the writing of The Risen and that that uh, uh, person who wrote the letter, what if that letter came to life as Bruce was talking? Well, there might be something there. And I went back and I pitched it and they said, you're right, there might be something there. Let's make a show together. And we made the show. And that's that's how that riddle came out. Um, the animation- it's yeah. not one of the episodes. Uh, no, but he. I, but I. The more I mention him in interviews, the more. The more I, I'm willing. We've tried. We're. we're we keep trying. I get it. That's the point but of this you know entire what? conversation. I get it. Look, we uh, Oprah and Spike and so many said Lin Manuel Miranda and and so many wonderful, wonderful Incredible. people gave their time yeah, and yeah, told yeah, their yeah. stories and so beautifully. And Lin, you know, and then I got to tell Lin my story of directing. Uh, uh, of directing Superbia right. because he's doing Tick, Tick, Boom. Yeah, and, and you know, a so, second ago. That's and, incredible. And, and you know what the show is about? It was Lynn that articulated the fundamental theme of that show. Your work is like a pebble in a pond and it ripples out and it affects, you don't know who it's going right. to affect, but those right. ripples touch other people. And that's really 
what we learned from making that show is that that's the essence of what that show really, I mean, of what that, of what your work really is. I couldn't believe how moved these artists who you don't think would be moved by a single person saying your work changed my life. This is how it changed my life. In each episode, we do four people. It never occurred to me that Oprah would be moved to tears. Right. That Spike, you could, you, you Stevie Wonder, could they, that they could be moved to tears or the verge of tears. That they could, they could marvel at the impact on one person that their work had. But then you remember that's what it's all about. And just forgive my naivete for a minute, like cart horse sort of thing. With each of these incredible people that that you interview, first of all, are you the one interviewing them? Are you asking? Oh, I, it must be said. It must be said. I work with a mighty team. I mean, I, I oversee the whole show, okay. but there are directors and there are producers and there are designers and there are d- d- DPs. I mean, there's, there are, there's of a, a team of editors. Of course. So on a project like that, because it's 10 it. episodes being done. You know, Absolutely. Yeah. But Mike, I, I guess, first of all, so were those all letters that uh, had been collected by Lin-Manuel Miranda's assistant or once the project was born? I, I, how does that work? Every, yeah, every everybody's different. Every again, every 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 the one whole, of them the is different. show is a riddle, and then every individual. So some people are well archived, right. uh, and and have lots of material. You can imagine what uh, what 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 Oprah's sitting atop. Yeah, um, and others, <laughs> yes. and others are um, you know are, are less archived, or yeah, are less mm-hmm. archived, and they're and or younger, or you know, Yara Shahidi is just beginning her career. Yeah. And so so you but but we live as as, as, as you, you know, in a, in a very connected world. So finding those who have written, who have written letters or expressed themselves uh, through emails or even tweets mm-hmm. uh, can be the beginning of the, yep. of the you journey. You can find them and, and follow the thread. What are you about to work on that we don't know about already? <laughs> um, well, I, I, this machine, my new company, mm-hmm. is as I as I mentioned, is really brand new. It's it's a few weeks old, um, and we have um, we have started to uh, put together a, a, a ton of incredibly exciting projects. I I'm, I'm pre announcement um, uh, uh, on all of them, but I can tell you that I I have a couple of films that I'm directing about iconic figures who uh, who who I'm I'm. I'm just I'm thrilled beyond imagining about. We're hoping for more seasons uh, of of Deer mm-hmm. on on Apple, um, and uh, and and are excited uh, for news to emerge on that. Um, and uh, and then on uh, on November 22nd on Showtime, as I mentioned, the the John Belushi film will be premiering, and uh, and that's a beautiful thing. And uh, um, we have our kind of uh, premiere next Wednesday, where where I get to uh, answer questions asked by uh, Judd Apatow. So I'm, I'm I'm really excited about that. Wow! Yeah. Um, there there's just a lot of you know. Uh, it, look, one of the great privileges of doing the work that I do is that people invite you to float into their worlds, and uh, 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 and if or people on their behalf invite you to float into their worlds, and you get to live in those worlds and experience them and experience the people who populate that world and the the adventures that they go on while you're with them and it is it's 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 like a dream because you know I come home and I have my wonderful life for which I'm so grateful for and my beautiful family for which I'm so grateful for and then I go to work and I get to experience these these other worlds and lives and you do it for a certain period of time and then you move on to another project, and it's just um, it's 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 just a great thing. And we're going through it right now with the with the John Belushi film, which I'm I'm I just uh, it's we're just having a really really rich experience sharing the film with people who shared their lives with John while he was alive, and for whom, to whom John meant so much. And then we'll soon do similarly with the with the Billy film. So I'm I'm just. Uh, it's it's um it's an ex- exciting fun time and um and like that and i'll tell you i you know going back to our 
going back to our roots, what I would really love to do is make a film about the making of a, uh, of a, of a, of a new musical. I, I, you know, I, I, I continue to try to persuade my, my friends and others in the, um, in the theater world to, to, to invite me in. in yeah. yeah. To tell that story because, because you know, and and I know from from all of our experiences, through all of our experiences, there's on some important level, there's nothing as rich as the mm. creation of that new Broadway musical. And and um, I I'm, I just picked up uh, um, Michael Rydell's new book, uh, uh, Singular Sensation. Yeah. And so, yeah. so you know, and it's got me back in that headspace. Yeah. When, Bro- when Broadway comes back, I want to. I'd love soon thereafter to be filming something. Well, I have a really important question for you because when you hearken back to walking into that meeting in shorts, um, <laughs> you know, I wonder having spent so much time with Anna Wintour, uh, <laughs> if there's anything about fashion that she gave you or that you think about in terms of as someone who wasn't a clothes horse, as it were, <laughs> um, did it change your perception or perspective on fashion? For yourself, oh, of course. Uh, for, Do you dress for, differently? I did. I did for a while. <laughs> I did for a while. <laughs> now no, I swear to you, I'm, I'm wearing the same clothes the day you met me in okay. in, in Stockbridge. A Mets pro- cap and <laughs> shorts and flip flops. It's, it's really, it's really disappointing that you got every piece mm. of clothing I'm wearing in that description. That there are people, there are people who will hear this and laugh very hard that you just did that. Um, I, uh, um, uh, but I will tell you this: the, uh, the the one of the very first days we shot on the September issue, uh, we were filming in Paris, and and Anna had kind of uh, assigned Andre Leon Talley to you know to to take us around when mm-hmm. we filmed with him, and Andre. But, immediately scolded me for my ignorance um, without my even having demonstrated it beyond what I was wearing uh, of the fashion world and said, if you want to understand fashion, you must come with me to Charvet where Charles de Gaulle had his underwear made. And, um, and off we went to Charvet, the clothier um, across the street from the Ritz. And, and Andre insisted that I had some bespoke clothing made for me. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and, and it wasn't cheap, but, um, but it felt like, uh, uh, the, the way to go. I, you don't want to say no to Andre yeah, Leon Day one, right. Uh, day one. And, um, and, uh, uh, I got the clothes made and on a subsequent trip to Paris, when we were filming, I got them picked up. It was several uh, weeks or months later. And, um, and when I wore those clothes while I was filming with Anna, I'm telling you, she responded to me in a completely different way Mm -hmm. than when I wore my day-to-day, what I thought was beautiful, John Varvatos suit that, Mm -hmm. you know, that, that, that I had, I really, you know, was at the height of my, uh, of my closet collection. Right. Right. You were um, proud of that suit. I was, but Anna, Anna, Anna saw and felt the stitching. I'm telling you, I every single time I wore, I wore the bespoke clothing, I I, I was I was treated differently, mm-hmm. and I don't think it was I don't even know if it was conscious, mm-hmm. but but I remember thinking, you see, greatness manifests in in all its all its unique ways, and for Anna Wintour, she can feel the stitching on someone's clothing, and she can feel that that's that's compelling to her in a way that, that, that common stitching isn't, uh, or the fabric or the way it just fits on the body. That's how her, her, her knowledge, her wisdom, her comfort level, her experience, all her genius all combined. And it was such an interesting lesson to me. I was so kind of grateful for it because you see that all, everybody is, as, as you, you know, experience brings you, you know, uh, it, it, it defines you and you see its manifestation when you get to, you know, uh, make, make, tell the stories of these people who, who are, who, as I said before, are, 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 you know, great at what they do, care a tremendous amount about what they do or doing it as well as can possibly be done under the highest stakes of circumstances. So that's my story about 
clothes and the September issue. Well, little known fact about me, I can't wait to see what the documentary about R.J. Cutler's life <laughs> is going to look like. It, I mean, you're just in the middle of it. It's pretty incredible, my friend. Thank you for sharing these people with us in a way that is so intimate and raw and and we never would have access had it not been for you and and as you said the incredible people you surround yourself with and I love how much you want to make sure everyone is included in that it speaks it speaks so deeply to who you are um tell me a little known fact about you before we go Oh goodness! Uh, I I I should have prepared, but um, it, can, uh, it can be anything. My 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 I may have mentioned, but my daughter Mara, Madeline is 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 five and three months, and my my son Max is two and three months, and they are the light, the light of my life. Oh well, you're a light in my life, my friend. Thank you for spending this time with me today, and I cannot wait to see you in person soon. I can't, I can't wait. I can't wait. And, um, and, and likewise, thank you for the time and for the memories and for the conversation and for being so awesome in the wedding and, uh, and for, for all of that, I send you so much love. The Little Known Facts theme song was written and performed by Georgia Famusa with backup vocals by Caleb Famusa. And episodes are recorded in New York City and edited by Nicholas Clark.